My name is Ursula Johnson. I'm Mi'kmaq First Nation. Um, they call me Little Bear. Uh, my tribal clans are the clan of the mouse and the clan of the wood spirits. I'm from the traditional district of Unamagi or the land of fog. And I'm talking to you now from uh, the district of the Great Harbor, Chibuktuk or Halifax in Nova Scotia, Canada. And what kind of work do you do art-wise? Mostly, I guess, I work in performance. Like, I do a lot of endurance performance, um, also performance-based installations. And I've only recently, probably in like the past... Um, I'd say like five or six years I've been moving into more of the realm of um, sculptural objects, which is a very new realm for me. And it's it's really interesting and exciting to see where things are going. And can you break down what endurance performance is? Yeah, so I do a lot of things that have to do with my body where I often put myself in these situations where I'm trying to push a bit of the envelope on what my body is physically able to do, um, but trying to push it to the point where I need my mind to step in sometimes to support my body, to say, I know you want to give up, I know you're tired, your body is sore, your legs hurt, your arm hurts, or your voice just needs to crack and can't keep singing this song, or whatever the physical activity is that I'm engaging in. I like pushing myself to the point where my mind has to kick in and has to convince my body that I can continue to go through um, the rest of the actions that I've set out for myself. So oftentimes I'll put together uh, a performance that would last anywhere from three hours to like six hours. I I tend to be, uh, I like three hours or six hours or four hours or eight hours. But I have done um, performances that gone like 12 hours and the longest I've done was an 18 hour, like nonstop. Um, and that was a bit, it, it, it was interesting. I, I wouldn't say it's something I would never do again, but it was definitely um, something I wasn't prepared for at the time. What would it take to be prepared for something like that? I think maybe what I've been doing the past uh, couple of years is really being mindful of my body as the object or the or the vehicle that helps to create these, you know, these art circumstances or events or whatever you call them. Um, so I've been really mindful of the types of food that I take into my body to make sure that I'm really well hydrated, you know, staying drug and alcohol free. Um, going to the gym, exercising, trying to maintain my weight and my physicality because if if your body is physically fit, 
then you're able to go into a different place that normally you wouldn't be able to go to if your body was not physically fit or if you did, if it wasn't um, accustomed to, you know, eating clean and um, taking in enough water and, you know, being mindful of how many cups of coffee I drink in a day. I'd be like, well, we'll drink one cup of coffee and maybe we'll have two cups of tea. Or <laughs> <laughs> so I guess like in regards to the physical aspect, that is really important. But then there's also like the psychological uh, readiness where, you know, I often will try to put myself into a mind space of thinking. And I do a lot of, um, you know, I do a lot of yoga. So it's all about breathing and the breath and trying to remind myself when I'm in uncomfortable situations that if as long as my breath is maintained and it's comfortable, then my body can get through whatever it is um, that it's in as long as, you know, I guess like kind of like geeking out here a little bit, as long <laughs> as my brain is supplied with the right amount of oxygen, then it's going to tell my body, you're going to be fine. <laughs> So I, I'm just really mindful of like that, you know, those breaths that you're taking in and letting my brain know that it's going to be okay. <laughs> and does that same type of like um, mental continuity cross over into the other types of art practices that you do? Like, do you find yourself maintaining your self-care in the same way when you do installation or sculptural work? Or is this very specific? I feel like... Right now, um, it's very specific to the body work, but I also feel like I've been trying to figure out ways on how to move it into uh, other practices. Like I've mentioned that I've only recently started working with sculpture, and it's only been, uh, I think, like the past probably year, well, maybe past two years, that I've worked in sculpture with um, non-natural materials because it's always been natural materials because I'm really mindful of, um, you know, kind of impact that whatever we make. And I, I feel like this was a part of the reason when I was going to school at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design when I didn't do sculpture, I didn't do ceramics I didn't do um, you know metal work I didn't do glass working I didn't do anything that was could potentially result in a permanent object um, because I didn't want that permanence but also thinking about the chemicals that I was using because when I first started at um, the art school I did photography and I got really sick after two years because of all of the chemicals so mm -hmm. my body couldn't handle the chemicals that I was working with. So I became very mindful of the studios that I was immersing myself into. I'm like, is there going to be a, a bunch of raw chemicals that are going to be laying around that are going to endanger my body? So I didn't want to put myself in those situations. So then I started working in the art forms that my family was working in, which is basketry. And so I started researching uh, Mi'kmaq basketry and learning about the practices that my family had been doing for generations and that relationship to the land of like harvesting the materials myself, like to be able to go into the forest to properly identify the tree that I need to harvest it in a good way. And then to make something that's, you know, potentially 
may not be a permanent object like a bronze sculpture, but it's something that's going to be around for, you know, hundreds of years. But it's also something that if it ended up in the landfill, then it's not going to be found, you know, mm-hmm. 10,000 years from now. It's like, mm-hmm. what is this object? <laughs> so I, I, I kind of like the ephemeral nature of working with those materials because it's something that the land can take back and become organic matter again. And I've had lots of conversations about traditional sculptures, sculptors that work in materials such as like bronze or metal. And they're like, well, these are all derivatives of natural materials. I said, yeah, but it's all about, you know, you process them and add so many chemicals to the point where it's not even organic anymore. And I think that's the thing that I'm really interested in. So I have a, um, a new body of work that is all inorganic materials. And I had, I struggled for a couple of years in while making them. And I was like, ah, oh, do I really want to work with plastic? Like it's so bad. <laughs> so I was really like struggling with it. But then I, I just, I needed it because that was the conversation. The conversation is about waste, about disconnect to nature, about trying to preserve something. And, you know, this, this plastic case, which is how indigenous made objects are preserved in these cultural institutions that are supposed to educate our people about our historical relations in regards to materials, in regards to object making. And so it really fit in the conversation. And I don't know if I could have had the conversation any other way than actually using the materials that are used, you know, in those museums. So, but I'm still, I, I still don't, I'm not happy that I made a bunch of plastic boxes. (laughs) You know, I guess over time they will just kind of melt. (laughs) It took a long time. Did you use recycled materials or um, like kind of found object materials or did you get new, new material? This was all like brand spanking new. Yeah. And where are these pieces now? What's the what's the concept behind this body of work a little bit further? The uh, so the body of work is is for a solo exhibition called Megwidedemin, which in my language of Mi'kmaq means um, it well it, it could mean two things. It could be a statement that says you do remember, but it could also be posed as a question with an inflection uh, at the end of do you remember, mm. and so. When you first walk into the space um, in the art gallery, and this is touring nationally across Canada, so it's all different galleries. Um, and the last gallery came out of, I believe, was in Newfoundland in the east coast of Canada. So when you first walk into the space, there's almost like this uh, kind of like a museum graveyard or something. You know how when you go into a museum and there's all these plastic cases on pedestals with, you know, the, the black velvet on, mm-hmm. on the plinth and then the low lighting and then you have your little object inside the case so there's 12 of those cases but each of the cases there's no object the cases are all empty the object is the case itself and what I've done 
is I've taken diagrams of my great grandmother's basket. So I took photos of her baskets and then I made a drawing out of it. From the drawing, I turned it into a screen print and I turned the screen print basically into a stamp on the masking of the plastic. And then I cut it all out of the masking and then I sandblast it. And then we remove the masking and then we assemble the cases. So then on each of the sides of that case, there's that sandblasted image of my great-grandmother's basket, but it's dissected in kind of like a Western, almost like a biological kind of scientific diagram that dissects, you know, this creature that you would see in a high school history book or a high school uh, science book or something. But all of the dissected terms are all in my language, and they all point to the way that the materials have been manipulated by the body in order to achieve that aesthetic. So it's essentially a code or a text that tells you how to make that basket. But my great-grandmother, when I asked her if she thought that the basket uh, making culture was going to survive in the Mi'kmaq people, she said, I don't think it's going to survive. She said, and I'll tell you two things. She said, one, the kids don't even know how to tell you the difference between a striped maple, a sugar maple, and a red maple, let alone how to process it, harvest it, and then to make the basket. She said, second, our language is going away. She said, so as soon as that language is gone, then all of the instructions that tell you how to live and how to work with those materials would be gone with it because they're hand in hand. So when she told me that, then that was when this idea, you know, kind of, I guess, initially started brewing up. And a few years after that, when I started figuring out, well, where's this conversation? How does it fit in? Then I felt like it fits best with the museums because the museums hold those objects and that knowledge, you know, those those tangible resources of our cultures that we're so far removed from because they're trapped in behind that glass case or the plexiglass or acrylic or whatever you want to call that case that doesn't allow us access to our language, to our culture, to our history. We don't know what these objects smell like. They've never been touched. You know, they're not handled by our people anymore. And the stories that travel with those objects are gone. So I wanted to tell the story about the language and how to make those objects. Because if a Mi'kmaq basket maker came into that space and there was no image, it just had the words, then they would see the image in their mind Mm -hmm. because... They understand that word as a recipe that gives a visual representation of what that looks like. You don't even need to see the object or to hold it. You just need that language. And so there's so many people in my community that don't speak that language. And, you know, we've been trying for so many years. We have immersion programs and a lot of language initiatives to try to bring it back, which we're doing, you know, pretty great because we have a lot of young people, specifically from my community, because we have the largest Mi'kmaq community in the world that speak the language. Um, And so a lot of those initiatives have been successful. But I wanted to have the conversation specifically about basketry. So in that main space are those 12 cases. And then there's two more spaces off to the sides. And then one is a place where in that space I am... Uh, processing an ash log from 
the actual log itself, which is about like four, four and a half, five feet, and it's about seven inches in diameter. I process it right down from the log to lats to, uh, you know, like chunks, and then I'm pounding it down, all these different processes that you're supposed to do in order to have the materials that you can work with because that's what my family has taught me and I've been, you know, trying to learn all of these ways of working. But what I'm trying to do is break down the stereotype of, you know, the Indian demonstrating knowledge because when people go to a festival or to a museum or something, they see the Indian there demonstrating their knowledge, their history. People come in and they consume that information. They're entertained by it. They've been enlightened in some way and then they leave. But what I'm doing is I'm processing the tree down to nothing. I'm not making anything. I'm sacrificing this tree in the space. Mm. So people come in and they're like, what are you making? <laughs> and I said, I'm making conversation. Awesome. <laughs> and then they're like, what? You're doing what? I said, I'm making conversation. And they're like, no, but what are you going to do with this tree? I said, oh, nothing. It's all garbage. And then they're like, what? What do you mean it's all garbage? <laughs> and then it makes them so upset that, one, they're seeing me in like, I'm sweating because it's hard labor, right, to pound this ash tree. I have like a six-pound sledgehammer. I have an axe. I have a hatchet. I have like spoke shaves on draw horses. And I'm just like tearing at this log. And then people are looking at me and they're like, but – I just sat here for like 45 minutes and I (laughs) go from here to here to here. And in my mind, I'm trying to figure out, wow, this is so much work. She must be making something beautiful. Maybe she's making those things. And then when they realize that I'm not making anything, then they get really upset about it because then they feel kind of robbed, right? Hmm. One, they walked into the art gallery to see this basket show, but there's no baskets. The cases are empty. It's in a language that they can't speak, so it makes it inaccessible, but it makes it even more inaccessible because there's nothing in the case. And then they come around to try to consume this traditional knowledge that this Indian is supposed to enlighten them with, and then it turns out the Indian's not making anything, so then they get even more upset. (laughs) So it's kind of like a bit of a provoker. And then when they leave me, I tell them, well, if you want to see baskets, you should go into the archive room. And then there's another room. So when people go into the archive room, there's all these chrome shelves that are all throughout all all sides of the walls. And then there's two computer terminals. And on the chrome shelves are all these little basket-type objects that must have been made by the materials that the woman is working on, but you don't really know. So you're kind of like left guessing. And then there's computer terminals that tell you to put on a pair of white gloves and to scan the object. And there's four motion detector cameras that are following you in the room. So people go over to the shelf with the white glove, they pick up one of the objects, they scan it uh, with the barcode scanner that's attached to the computer terminal. And then on the terminal, there's a picture of the object that's in their hand and then the didactic description of you know, the period, 21st century, tribal affiliation, Mi'kmaq, dimensions, materials, has all this information on there, the title of the, of, 
of the object. And then there's a little tiny piece that says description. And then the description is very kind of vague, uh, which is often the case in a lot of museums. And so they come in and they'll see one thing and it's like, oh, well, isn't that interesting? This little basket here with this little foot on it and it's only stands about two inches tall it says that it was used and then they'll look at it and look at the text it was used to wash the soap suds off the baby's head during a bath well isn't that beautiful that's what they <laughs> used to wash the soap suds off but anybody that knows like that that's not a part of our culture it's not a part of history so all of these objects in this room are like a constructed history, but because it's presented in the format of this all-knowing, knowledge-holding museum, then people don't question it. They just come in and they're like, you're telling me the history, you're right because you have the authority and I'm giving up any power to question the information and I'll just believe what you're telling me. Wish, star, to far away to dive into inviting the audience to participate further than just being the viewer often with your work? Is that kind of a running theme or is this show specific? No, it's kind of a, it's, it's, I would say it's one of my, uh, like my methods or my processes because the other thing that like I have all these, you know, these trickster ways of, you know, presenting this information, shaking things up, but there's a lot of educational programming that goes with that show, for instance, and this is also something I use in other activities that I put together. So the educational programming for this show is not just like the gallery tours that people always do, but one of the things that I've been really focused on with this show in particular is to make sure that the gallery and all of those, uh, you know, the professionals within that institution come to the First Nations community to have this conversation. Because in most recent years, it's always how do we get the First Nations and the Indigenous community to the gallery? And so I go to these places and I say, well, how often have you been to the First Nations community? And so part of this programming is that each place that takes the show, they have to host something in a neighboring community. They have to bring in the school groups um, from, you know, those reservations. And they have to host something with local musicians. They have to hire a local catering company. And so the what happens on, on the reserves or the Friendship Center or, you know, the Aboriginal Community Center, whatever the places that we're doing it, is we have an open forum type of discussion where we talk about uh, resource conservation, we talk about um, customary practices in art making, we talk about how the institution can work with the community to help in regards to conservation and preservation because the museums have a very important role to play here and 
the community has a very important role. And if we're able to renegotiate space in regards to what conservation and preservation is, then I think we're going to be like so far ahead in regards to bringing back customary practices, relearning our language, you know, learning about ecological responsibility. And it's something that the museums in Canada anyways, that are very interested in, you know, developing those relationships. So a lot of times I have, uh, you know, opportunities for engagement for the public um, to take part but also people like if I'm collaborating with artists or if I have a designated performer for instance in an installation then what I've been doing is hosting what I call um, kind of like a debrief so if there's um, if we're doing something in a university gallery, for instance, and it has that trickster mentality where it's kind of mischievous and a little bit of an edge on it to make you so uncomfortable that I want you to stay with that uncomfortable feeling, but then to question why am I feeling uncomfortable? So what we do is we open it up and we say we're going to have, you know, not a talking circle, but a sharing circle for people to come and to share why they were feeling uncomfortable. And for all of us to talk about that, and it's time to peel up the rug and, you know, mm. talk about the stuff that's been buried underneath. And I think it's something that's really important. It's, it's, I feel like it's our responsibility as artists not to just, you know, throw the idea out there to instigate things and then to leave it. I think it's very important to talk about what's happened afterwards. are a participating artist in the hashtag call response project and you've recently done a performance through that collaborative project can you talk about your experience and what your work was with it for sure so the call response project um, what we've been doing is looking at different areas where we can engage in art making that has something to do with reconciliation. What is reconciliation to you? Um, so when I was asked this, I started thinking about um, an experience that I had overseas. I was in Scotland a couple of years ago, and I was there for a group residency program. And I was the only person that worked in specifically in like conceptual fine art because all the other nine artists they were very strict like craft discipline so the craft discipline like glass making ceramics it's all how mm. how did you do that right how did you get to that how did you manipulate those materials but because I work in performance and installation it's for me it's all about why so that I would ask people, I'm like, why do you work with glass? And they're like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> so I felt like I wasn't, you know, fitting in for a few days. And I was like, ah, I don't know how to, you know, talk to these people because I'm all about the why, but they're all about the how. I think I'm just going to go for a walk. I just need to go in nature. So here I am in the foothills of Scotland. And, and it's all just like pastures upon pastures upon pastures with sheep and steer like everywhere 
And I started looking and I'm like, where's the forest? Where's the forest? I just want to go to the forest. I'm like a, a, I'm a woodland tribal person. I'm like, put me in the forest. I don't want to be walking around in farm field. And then I finally saw way off in the distance, this little patch of forest. So I made like a beeline for the forest. And then I got there and I noticed it was quite thin. And I walked around the other side of the tree line and it was all clear cut. Mm. It was just gone. And I was like, this is where the forest is. I'm like, it's all been clear cut. So then I started talking to the locals and I'm like, how long have, you know, these pastures been here and what is the history of this area? And I talked to a lot of the locals and turns out in that area that I was in, they don't even live there. They don't even own the land. They're all workers for the estates of the people that own them and all of the animals that were grown in that area weren't even grown for the locals, they were going to be sent to arbitoires. They weren't allowed to live past the age of two. They're sent to arbitoires, which is the meat is then shipped to South America for processing and then sold in the United States. And I was like, what? Seriously? I'm like, that is like, talk about like disconnected and far removed. And it made me realize just how disconnected we were like within a global context to everything to this land like the trees were gone the land has been traumatized the animals are eating like traumatized grass then the animals are traumatized and then the people are eating the traumatized animal and don't get me wrong I love meat I love to eat meat (laughs) I think it's a very important part of our human diet Um, but it's just something about you know that process that really bothered me. So then I started looking at the rolling landscapes of this area and I started talking to uh, a musician there who was also one of the artists and I said, listen, I would like to work with you on a project. I said, I'm really interested in, you know, the way that the land moves and I think that there's something there. And she said, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, if you look at where the landlines are, I said, in a lot of indigenous cultures all over the world, they sing those landlines as a way to navigate space. I said, there's, um, you know, tribes in sub-Saharan Africa that they sing a song and they know that from the time they left and if they go straight north in nine stanzas of that song, they've reached the watering hole that their entire community depends upon. And if they mess up the song, they're not going to get water. I said, so, and there's so many cultures that have determined their movement on this land through song. So what I started to do is I took a topographical map of that area. And she had done a lot of research on the Pictish peoples in Scotland, which were uh, like the indigenous tribal people there, prior to colonization, like they were completely eradicated. And so we started talking about, uh, you know, colonialism and about how, um, you know, people were assimilated and all of this trauma and everything. So what we did is we took the last known Pictish settlement in Scotland and I mapped it from that Pictish settlement right to the place where we were and I drew a line on that map. And then I took all the topographical, you know, the elevations and the peaks and everything. And then I drew it on a bar graph or on a grid paper and made it into a bar graph, at which point it almost looked like a wave file. You know how when you see the line. So then I gave that to her 
And I said, I want you to write a song, you know, based upon this line. And then so she wrote a song based upon that line. And then I was like, oh, this is this is interesting. There's something that, you know, I think can live at all different parts of the world. So I did that project in Cape Breton, did it in Antigonish. And then most recently, uh, for call response, we did it in Toronto. And my collaborator there was Cheryl Rondell. She's a cremate artist. And she's also a songwriter and a song publisher. So when I told her that story and I talked about how the human impact on the land has changed that topography. Mm. I said, we've dynamite, we've blasted away, we've dredged, we've done all kinds of things that has changed that landscape. I said, if we looked straight across at the land, all of those dips, those peaks, those valleys, we've changed all of it. I said, and so what I want to do is write a song for that land to say, we're sorry. We have lost our responsibility of stewardship and we're going to sing you this song for a period of three to four to six to eight hours, however long it needs to take to apologize as an act of reconciliation, hoping that you can hear us and we can move to this place of accepting responsibility for taking care of you again. So we did that in Toronto where I marked the land from Georgina Island um, and then south right to downtown Toronto. I gave her the bar graph drawing that had a wave file, and then she wrote a song uh, in Nihiyawin in response to that line. And then we sang that song, that song line, over and over and over, like constantly on repeat for a period of three and a half hours. What was the reception in that space to the work that you did? It was really... Uh, it was really interesting because every other time that I've done this work, it has always been outdoors so that we can physically sing it to the land. And this was the one time where we didn't do it outdoors. It was hosted in a theater, like a traditional black box theater. And as soon as I walked in, I, myself and Maria and Cheryl, we walked in and we had already all decided that we were going to break the black box. Like, we're going to break the black box. We don't want spectators sitting up there with the idea of paying for a ticket, coming to be entertained by these artists on the stage. So we got rid of all of the masking. There was, um, you know, like light blocking shades on the windows that we had them pull up. Like, we want sunlight to come in. We want people to experience the light change as they're sitting here. We had a big projection screen that had... Um, a video footage in slow motion that was on essentially looped for the entire time. And it was like a, a seed from a birch tree that was flickering in the wind, but the seed was dead, but it was like hanging on for dear life on this tree in the <laughs> winter time. And so what happened is we put a bunch of blankets and pillows and everything all over the place. We got rid of the chairs that would have been on the risers. So when the viewers come into the space, then they see this is something that's supposed to be participatory because the blankets were basically like right at our feet and kind of all over the place. So people could come as close as they wanted to or go as far away as they wanted to. And the doors were just left open. 
um, in the theater. So it was never, you know, showtime and then doors shut, mm. which is very unusual for the theater to have their doors open for the entire time because they're so used to like, you know, the show has begun type of mentality. <laughs> totally. So for the doors to be open and then for them to be able to come in and out, I think really changed the space there. But it was it was a big black box theater. So the acoustics were really great in it. Um, you know, we amplified ourselves. We had two microphones. We each had our hand drums. And I think I think Cheryl may have had a, like an elk hide. And then I had a moose hide. So mine was quite deep and low. And then hers was a bit higher. So our drums really kind of, you know, played off each other. They had a really good conversation with themselves and each other, um, along with mine and Cheryl's voices, that we were able to kind of play with that. And and I have to say, like, this, this piece went on for three and a half hours, and I've done a lot of durational performances, and it's not very often that people come at the beginning and then they stay for the entire thing. Because normally people come and they're like, oh, yeah, she's singing the same thing over and over, and then they leave after half an hour or 40 minutes, right? Some people, you know, have, like, a really intense emotional response, and they've stayed for, like, an hour and a half. But the Toronto audience, like almost everybody that came stayed for the entire three and a half hours. And then they stayed for another hour because Maria's performance was right after ours. And it was amazing. I'm like, wow, you're the audience here is so generous that they're like, you know what? I'm just going to take my whole day to go and see these three indigenous artists tell us their stories. And I was so uh, moved by it and so humbled and just so gracious that people spent so much time. Like I even told them when we were all sitting there uh, during Maria's performance, I said, I really commend you. I said, I don't know if personally I would have sat for an entire, you know, almost like four and a half hours to witness this. And you know, th them sitting there was a performance in itself. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you sat on that cushion for that long? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. say the audience was primarily indigenous peoples or was it was it a mixture of the demographic from the area I think for Toronto I, I wouldn't say that it was you know a, a adequate representation of the demographic because Toronto is so uh, you know um, what do you call it like multiculturally or like multi-ethnically diverse uh, there was a large number of indigenous artists and curators and performers and writers that were in the audience but there there was also a lot of non-indigenous persons and you know there was there was some people from um, different ethnic and immigrant communities but largely the audience was first nations or indigenous persons and caucasian peoples and does it change the way that you perform? You've talked about the the trickster element that creeps in, you know, in in your um, concept process and in the execution of your work. 
when you step up to do an endurance performance and you notice the audience, do you, does that shift the way that you, um, I guess, attack the performance or like begin to like expose yourself? Do you, do you tend to hold yourself a little bit more safe if it's not an indigenous um, audience? I know it's a weird question, but I think no, artists deal with that. It's an interesting question. And I, I'm kind of thinking, well, no, but yes. And yes, but no. Mm. Because I find a lot, the, the question, I, I try to have, I try to pose that question when I'm initially developing my work. So it doesn't, majority of the time, I'd say probably 90% of the time, it doesn't influence the delivery of the work because I've already thought about it. Mm. When I made Make We Did, I mean, with the cases and, you know, the performance and the shelves, I knew that it was largely going to be a white audience. There was also largely going to be academic people. There are going to be scientists of some sort, anthropologists, archaeologists, ethnologists, you know, some type of ologists, um, because that's the conversation, that's the language I'm employing, the tools that I'm using. And when, for instance, when I did that's the land sings that's that's this project uh the series that i'm doing for call response when i did it in cape breton it was at cape breton university which has the unamagi college which is a Mi'kmaq uh, college part of the university and there's a lot of speakers so when i wrote that song i used my language to talk about how the people from my district are taking responsibility for taking care of the land because my my tribe we're the first um, we, we were kind of precedent setting in regards to fighting for hunting and fishing rights in Canada. Uh, you know, we we live in unceded territories. We never gave up the land. So, and our people constantly remind the government of our province here that they're on unceded territory right so something comes up and be like let's remind you there's no land treaties here this is our land and this is what we're going to say has to happen right and I know that that history and that knowledge and that information is there so I know a lot of Mi'kmaq scholars Mi'kmaq professors, academics, Mi'kmaq students were going to come to that performance because it's in their backyard. It's on their lunch break, right? So I wrote the song for them. Mm. And so I knew that they were going to come. And if all of them decided not to come on their lunch break, it wouldn't matter because they can hear that song and those words reverberating in the space that they're occupying. So I, I try to think about who am I speaking to? What am I wanting to say? And how am I going to say it before I actually even execute the project? So that by the time I get there and it's time to begin, I don't even look up to see who's there. I don't even know who's there. Sometimes, you know, I might have an auntie that comes by and she's like, you didn't even see me. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, sorry, but I was kind of like, you know, <laughs> I'm like I don't know who's there. I didn't look up. 
Um, if there's any other um, insights or reflections you have about the call response experience you had for your first performance or what, what you might do differently or what else you want to tap into in your further work with call response, can you share that with us? For sure. One of the things that, um, and my collaborator for the, you know, that first iteration of the call response project of the land sings that we did in Toronto, we, um, both of us, we're not, we're not Anishinaabe, we're not Haudenosaunee, that's not our territory. She's Nehio and I'm Mi'kmaq. We, we are, we're trespassers in, in that tribal territory. And both of us are very aware of it, you know, that we're these two people from two different tribal groups that have come into one territory and it's disputed territory because the territory, the Anishinaabe people say that it's their territory, the Haudenosaunee say it's their territory, and there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of conflict to try to figure out, well, whose territory is it, you know? Well, let's look at archaeology. And it's like, well, really, does the archaeology always tell you or does archaeology just tell you where people have moved, mm. right? It doesn't. It doesn't tell us who decided or the conversations that were in the longhouse or in the wigwams or the teepees or whatever those dwellings were, where those political engagements happen. We don't know those conversations. We can tell you maybe what type of minerals were used at that time. We can tell you where the fire pit was, but we don't know the conversations that were had. So a lot of times, you know, you're kind of stuck in this place of trying to figure out, well, who, you know, where can we get the information from? So one thing I'm really interested about the next iteration of the Lansing's project is that I'm going to work with a respondent in British Columbia. And so British Columbia, specifically Vancouver, has that same, you know, uh, negotiation of tribal territory that has happened. And then it's like, well, is it, you know, is it Squamish people that uh, are from this territory or, you know, is which type of Salish people? Because there's so many different tribes. Like British Columbia has, I don't even know how many different tribes in that territories. But when I was talking to Tanya, she said there's really like three tribal groups that stake claim to Vancouver. And I said, well, well, who is it? And she's like, well, there's like Squamish and uh Muskeg and there was a I can't remember the other this is horrible. I should remember the tree tribal groups, but she said they're basically, you know, you ask them whose territory is and they'll say it's mine. But, but then you ask the other person sitting at the same dinner table and they'll be like, No, it's mine. Right. So I'm interested to negotiate that space of that, you know, that conflicted land because then it it for me it's interesting because well if we don't know whose territory is it is or if it's everybody's territory then whose responsibility is it to take care of that land and to enter into that act of reconciliation with the land and and I was talking to Tanya I said is it possible to work with maybe two or three songwriters and collaborators from you know each of those territories if there's three tribal groups that stake claim, then 
can we use three tribal groups in the creation of this piece that everyone accepts responsibility and we're all going to work together to try to take care of this? So that's some of the stuff that we're still, you know, kind of hashing out and working through because we have the rest of the summer and um, and then in the fall when, uh, you know, my piece in particular goes live in the fall. So uh, we got quite a bit of time, but I, I have all my topographical maps of the area and I've already started <laughs> you know, kind of mapping a bit of a trajectory. And um, so it'd be interesting to see how that, that territorial dispute is resolved and if we can come to a place of figuring out whose responsibility it is. <laughs> Everyone's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is it going to be the first time that you ever worked with several people in one of these um, songs? Well, when we did it in Antigonish, I had two songwriters. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, the two... Out of those two songwriters, one of them ended up being one of the main performers, and then he subcontracted another performer. Um, so the two of them split the time, and I I didn't sing with them at that time. Um, and it was two men, and I had them on a river bank, and the river was so full of garbage in like the past you know 100 years or something of like old rusted out parts of cars and bicycles and stuff that um, it was basically down to like a running brook mm. and what we did is we threw a couple of spotlights onto the brook and the lights were not on the performers at all they were sitting singing to the brook and I had um, a condenser mic that I put on the brook so that the sound of the brook joined them in their singing. And um, so what happened is as time progressed, because all it was in a festival and all we had was just a like a speaker in a parking lot. So people walk past and they're like, oh, someone's like playing music on an iPod or something. <laughs> they didn't realize that it was live until it started to get dark. And then the river all of a sudden was like, being lit by these spotlights that you didn't see in the daytime and then people are like what the hell why are the lights on that river and what is this music and then they see the two guys down by the river and they're like oh my god these guys have been singing since four o'clock this afternoon and it's like eight o'clock at night now when people thought it was a song on repeat so then it made people want to scale down the riverbank to go and watch these guys. And we ha ended up having like a whole crew of security for safety reasons. Nobody could go down there. But then it turned into something totally different, which was really interesting because everybody wanted to consume. They just wanted to consume, you know, this beautiful Indian man voice that they could hear singing on a drum. They just needed to see his face. They're like, we just need to see him. We need to. I'm like, why? Why can't you just look at the river and look at the brook and see all this garbage here and feel, feel what he's singing? And you don't have to, you know, sit there and look at his face and take pictures and your selfie with him. Just listen to him and listen to what he's saying. And so it was really interesting to kind of see how, um, you know, quickly it was almost like a mob mentality of people needing to consume. And mm. um, it, it was definitely something that I, I had never experienced before. And it's something that will, will stay with me for a long time. And it'll probably end up turning into like another piece of work where it's like, no, you're not allowed. <laughs> <laughs>
How do you keep your trajectory as an artist and maybe what keeps you fascinated? Like how do you how do you keep that spark? How do I keep that spark? That's a hard question. Hmm. hmm. I think definitely thinking about my wife. She really like because I always tell people we were brainwashed at the same institution. <laughs> we speak <laughs> the same language in regards to like art and visual culture. It's really it's really important. Like art is our life. We, you know, we sit down at for breakfast, we talk about art. For lunch, we talk about art. Like constantly, it's always art. Like at the grocery store, we were just talking about like the business of art while we're like buying our supper, right? <laughs> so I think it's really important to have uh, at least, you know, at least one person in your life that you can have that engagement with because a lot of times, you know, if if we're working in our studios or working at home, you know, wherever that may be, just to be able to have somebody to engage in that conversation with about some of the ideas that you have or, you know, different ways that you want to try to work through something. It's, it's good to have somebody that you can connect with and hash things out, you know, kind of have like a little bit of a, what do you call it, like a bit of a critique. I think it's really important to have that and, and having like a really um, strong peer group of Indigenous artists um, you know, all across this country is really, um, it's something that has helped, you know, my process and my methods, because even though somebody is all the way across the country working on something with completely different materials, that doesn't mean that me on this side of the country working with completely different materials isn't trying to engage in that same dialogue. So I think it's really important to figure out you know, where that conversation is, how you fit in that conversation and, you know, what you can bring to the dinner table. If there's a big potluck party of Indigenous artists in this country, then what are you going to bring that's going to hopefully mesh with everybody else's? What advice would you give to yourself as artists, um, maybe when you were starting out uh, or 10 years ago or whatever? <laughs> hmm. 10 years ago, eh? I would probably say a couple of things to the young me. I'd say document your stuff. Do it well. Hire somebody who is a photographer. <laughs> Don't think you can do it because you're not a photographer. <laughs> Hire a photographer to document your work. I would probably also say slow down. There's plenty of time. Think things through. You don't need to constantly like rush and just throw things out because I'm a firm believer that um, we need that time for marination, you know, in order to be able to have that really great idea. You need to let it sit and percolate and just slow down and take the time and don't let your emails pile up. <laughs> Seriously. I stress you out on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I feel like artists just need somebody who checks their emails for them. <laughs> like that's all the assistant does. It's like yeah. respond to emails. Can you check my emails or just put stuff in my calendar, please. <laughs> oh, 
the way, can you book my flight, my hotels? And <laughs> I know that's an interesting conversation, though. All that back end stuff that it takes to be a professional artist, and and how 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 do you navigate that? Like all the paperwork and bureaucracy of aside from the art, like what what's your trick? <laughs> well. I always tell people that I spend probably 70% of my time doing administration, um, probably 15% of it is networking, which is a lot for an introvert. <laughs> and, and then I probably have 10% of it is making, and the last 5% is me wandering around on the shores of Nova Scotia thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very important percent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what advice has influenced you or has there been some someone in your life who has said something that just like stuck with you or or something that you carry with you as a tool that you can always go back to when you're falling off track or kind of losing sight of your process or um, of your vision, I guess. Hmm. There's so many things that are running through my head when you say that. Because there's so many people, like elders from my community, my grandparents my great-grandparents and you know senior indigenous artists so many people have given such great advice that has you know been able to humble me and bring me to a good place of you know like mindfulness and being aware but the thing that always comes back to me like time and time again is something my my mother told me years ago when I first left the reserve I said, I'm, I'm moving to the city, Mom. I said, I'm going to go work in the city. I'm going to try to get into that school that I wanted to go to. And I'm going to do something. And this is it. This is the time. And she said to me, be careful what you say. She said, because everything you say, every time you say something, they're going to think that you're speaking for all the Mi'kmaq people. And I thought that was very, was really good advice because she is hyper aware of the way that indigenous peoples are exoticized, pedestalized, um, you know, held to this higher place of, you know, the, as like, you know, what I said, the, the all-knowing Indian type of thing, right? And And it's something, that piece of advice, you know, when, when you have a really great opening, you get a couple of great like hits in the press. It's all over social media, you know. You, it's you know, there's like a buzz around you, and people are like, "Oh wow, you know, I love your work. I love your work." And they're just kind of like coming at you like this, and they want to know things. And I just always think about what my mom said, and it just like brings me back. And I'm like, it's time to just like, just chill, be humble. Take this in, be grateful and appreciate, and remember where you come from, because mm. it's really important. 
Oh, that's amazing. Your mom sounds like a very, very strong woman. She knows what's up. <laughs> She's pretty good. <laughs> I like to end the podcast with what I call the soapbox moment. If you could say one thing to the world using this as your platform, what would it be? One thing. <laughs> one thing. <laughs> one thing. Hmm. This is, I think my trickster wants to come out here. Stop <laughs> buying farmed fish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like there's like so many things wrong. Like, I don't know. It's just going to throw me in like a rant about like total disconnect with resources and we don't even know how to fish anymore. We don't know how to hunt. We don't know how to harvest materials and like we don't know how to do anything because we're so accustomed with walking into that, you know, little grocery store and going in to buy our farmed fish and who knows how many pesticides, antibiotics, you know, whether it's even a GMO or not. And then we're taking it home, we're feeding it to our kids and our kids are ending up with all these allergies and sensitivities and they're getting sick and, you know, ending up with cancer so young. And there's just so many, like if we just all stopped just for a second and just started thinking about what happens if we stopped concerning ourselves with trying to have like the right type of banana to go in our smoothie in the morning? And just looked at how many people in our own backyards are starving. They don't have any food and distribution of resources. And it's not even about distribution of wealth. Like, you know, the stuff that I throw in my compost because I think it's spoiled in my fridge could feed so many people. And what gives me the right to have something spoil in my fridge when somebody down the road doesn't even have, you know, the money to be able to go and buy a cucumber to put on their salad or they don't even have a salad because they don't have, you know, access to that stuff. And yeah, it just drives me crazy. And I don't know how else to say it except just to try to make it into like a bumper sticker or something. Stop buying farm fish. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's good that at least you have um, one resource of resolution, like something small that can actually like make a specific impact, you know, because the woes of the world are so grandiose. That's often the excuse to not do anything, you know, so starting with a small act of not buying farmed fish, for example, is actually like people's brains can like wrap around it <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's all you gotta do just stop buying farm fish that's it the, the whole world will be saved if you just stop buying farm fish <laughs> <laughs> there will be no wars <laughs> well thank you so much Ursula I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me Thank you, Ginger. <laughs> the great flood of tears that we've cried for our 
brothers and sisters have died Over 500 years has washed away our fears And strengthened our pride Now we turn back the tide We will no longer hear your commands We will slide your control from our So